Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about uh, mayor's debates or potential debates, including the mayoral candidates, maybe is the better way to phrase this. Uh, we all know that uh, we covered this story, of course, on CHML the other day, that the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce uh, once again uh, approached two of the major candidates for the mayor's job, uh, incumbent Fred Eisenberger and Vito Scro. Uh, and uh, now, according to the chamber, the story that I saw anyway uh, this morning in the Spectator said that uh, both parties had uh, declined to take part in a debate like that. Uh, I have, have information that is contrary to that that suggests that one of the parties, Mr. Scrow's campaign, were not even notified that uh, the chamber was uh, offering an invitation. And uh, as a matter of fact, they said that they quite rightly would have jumped uh, at the opportunity to do that. Uh, and I want to I get into that in just a couple of seconds. I, I also need to tell you that we at CHML offered an invitation to both uh, Fred Eisenberger and Vito Scro to come in studio. Now, you may remember four years ago, uh, we actually hosted the Chamber's uh, mayoral debate. It was up at, uh, at Michelangelo's, and, and uh, it was a lunch and breakfast, rather, and then I, I moderated the debate that went on for a couple of hours. That included only three of the mayoral candidates in that election, Brian McCaddy, uh, Brad Clark, and Fred Eisenberger. And all of them agreed, and all of them took part in the program. Uh, in the past, uh, before the Chamber did that, we had our own debates right here in studio. And, of course, we don't, to this point, have never included all of the candidates for logistical reasons, but also because we want to get the people that have a chance at winning this thing and, a ch and, and talk about the key issues. Uh, in previous campaigns, of course, we've had, uh, well, Larry DeAnne, uh, Bob Rettina, Fred Eisenberger in studio to debate key issues. Yet there seems to be a reticence, um, the part of uh, at least Mr. Eisenberger's team, uh, to take part in these. At least that's the view that some people are taking. We did extend an invitation to, uh, to Fred Eisenberger to be a part of the debate here in studio. And uh, this is the response. I want to take just a second to read this, then we're going to get to our guest and talk about this. Basically, what we got in response to our invitation was, a, well, a form letter. Uh, it's not addressed to us, not addressed to anybody. It says, just thank you for your invitation to participate in a debate facilitated by 900 CHML. Our candidate upholds the principles of a fair and democratic election in his view that in order to uphold those principles, it would be erroneous to participate in a debate where only a small fraction of the candidates are invited. A fair and democratic election is characterized in part by its in inclusivity and equal opportunity to have one's voice heard. And it goes on and on. You, you get the gist of what they're saying here, okay? Uh, mind you, as we said, in the last election, uh, Mr. Eisenberger did take part in a debate that did not include all of the candidates, as he did in the, uh, the ca campaign before that, too. So uh, his embracing of, of the uh, democratic principle of all or nothing uh, is relatively new, as far as we can ascertain anyway. Uh, should he have done this? Should he have taken part in the debate? Should uh, an incumbent especially, uh, with such key issues going on on the table now with such an important municipal election, be turning down invitations like this? I want to bring somebody who's been in this process before. Larry DeAnne, of course, is a former mayor of the city of Hamilton and a guy who, while he was mayor and uh, actually running for the job again, did take part in these debates. He's also a lobbyist, of course, at the City of Hamilton now. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give his take. Larry, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Oh, you there, Larry? No, I think we just lost him. All right, well, we'll try to hook up with him in just a couple of seconds. Uh, the, the gist of this and the concern here is there seems to be some, some cloudiness about exactly what went on here. 
uh, about the Chamber's invitation, uh, about who declined and who was invited, and of course our invitation at CHML to take part in the Mayor's debate. And the reason we do this, quite frankly, is we want you, the voters, to be informed. We want you to make informed choices. Mayoral candidates rarely knock on doors. That's likely to happen in your neighborhood. And you get literature. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Uh, some people access web pages to try to get information. Some people don't bother. But we often and have in the past offered to give our airtime here at CHML to these candidates so they can debate the key issues. And that way you can make an informed decision. I think we got Larry back now. Uh, Larry, thanks for joining us on the program today. Well, uh, hopefully to stay for a while. I hope so. Yeah, we I, we did not edit you or censor you. I got nothing. You nothing you said was redacted. I got to tell you that up front. <laughs> All right. Let me let me the obvious question: Should Fred Eisenberger take part in these debates? Well, let me let me tell you that, and you accurately um, uh, recalled um, the history of my involvement. I always enjoyed debates. Uh, I, I think I won every mayoralty debate that I was in, and lost two of the three elections I was in as well. So whether they have any lasting influence or not is another story. But it's all about, um, so I favor debates, frankly, but it's all about strategy at this point, right? Uh, I mean, there was a debate by the Afro-Caribbean um, Society of Hamilton. I'm not sure if that's their exact name. Uh, it was reported in, uh, in uh, the paper uh, this morning, at least in the CBC News uh, this morning, uh, that uh, Vito's Grove didn't attend that debate. Um, he thought it was going to be a meet and greet. He said he was going to be there. Then he canceled. Uh, much of the chagrin, uh, apparently, of the 130 people who attended and the organizers who had received um, assurances that he would be there. I'm sure, I don't know what happened. I have not spoken to Vito's uh, campaign, but there was probably some strategy there. Maybe this uh, wasn't felt to be his group. It wasn't felt to be his night. Maybe he was busy doing some other things. Maybe he had second thoughts. So it's all about strategy. And I think in terms of Fred's um, reluctance to appear one-on-one with Vito, it's about strategy, I think. Um, by all reports, and, you know, there was a Cable 14 debate. I watched a little bit of it. Um, uh, Dreschel um, uh, reported on it uh, in his column, uh, and he indicated that, uh, that Fred uh, Eisenberger, the incumbent mayor, essentially mop the floor uh, in terms of substance with all of those candidates there. So you've got to believe, if that's true, that it's not that Fred is uh, afraid of debating or unwilling or unable to debate, but it's strategy. And, and in his mind, uh, he is saying to himself, or his campaign is saying, they've reached the decision that why elevate one candidate and make it a one-on-one race when for the incumbent, it's, uh, it's probably advantageous to blend that candidate in with everybody else so that that message might be blunted um, in the voters' mind. So, so when, in other words, what they're trying to do is minimize Vito's Gross campaign. That's, that's exactly... And I, I get that from a strategic standpoint, Larry. I understand that. But, but is there also a consensus that, that as you look at this field of candidates for the mayor's job here in the city of Hamilton that it is probably a two-person race? And I don't even know how close the two of them are. But so, it, yeah, they, they, you separate the wheat from the chaff here. And I, well, I, watch, I also watched the Cable 14 debate. It was a circus, frankly. It was. And, it it, was. and, and a total waste of time. Uh, and, and, you know, you really, okay, anybody who wants to register for public office, you know, God bless them, et cetera. But we, we, we want to narrow this down to serious candidates, people that, that, that are, are vested in the issues and understand what's going on. And really, as I read the literature here, there are maybe two of them that stand out, and those are the two. 
Well, except I would say this, uh, Bill, and I have not personally seen polls, but I have heard about polls from both camps. And uh, in fact, in one poll, apparently Vito and uh, George Rusich uh, were neck and neck uh, in uh, in uh, support. Now, this was a few weeks ago. Uh, so who is the legitimate contender? Is it the guy that's been able to raise um, a lot of money and seems to have a slick uh, a campaign going uh, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of veto, which, which he does, uh, or is it? Might it be one of the other contenders as well? And if you believe that poll, uh, there's at least one other candidate that seems to have uh, something to say that people are paying attention to. Uh, so, do you include a third, maybe a fourth uh, candidate as well, or do you simply, um, you know, take the uh, position that look, just because uh, vetoes uh, start contrast uh, to uh, to Fred in terms of you know the uh, uh, the LRT issue is what we want to talk about um, but it is it is one it is, is a ballot box issue I mean I think we all have to to admit that that's it it may not be the driving issue for everybody but it certainly is for an awful lot of people and you know Larry notwithstanding your position on the issue or Fred's or Vito's for that matter this is a key issue for an awful lot of people, and there's there's a lot of and people are looking at this election to a certain extent as a referendum on LRT. No, no question about that. But but again, uh, referencing uh, the poll that that I heard about, I know, but but uh, I, I haven't seen the poll, so I I, I don't I don't want to legitimize those, okay? Because I don't know who's doing them. I haven't seen any numbers on this. But why this the, this this newfound religion to democracy and inclusiveness that that Fred is showing now? Because he didn't adhere to that four years ago. He agreed to the debate up there at Michelangelo's four years ago. We didn't invite all the candidates to that, but he was fine. Uh, the election before that. We had the the debate here in studio. He was he didn't have them all here then. He was fine well, with it at that point too. Sure, but but again, it, I then go back to the, the the whole issue of strategy. I mean, people people are trying to win the election, and they're going to use whatever strategy they think they uh, they that best places them in the right light. I mean, even last it, night, the, the the debate that you just referenced that Mister Scrow did not attend. That not all the candidates were there, but Fred seemed comfortable there. But they were all invited. That's the difference. If some choose not to go, then... Well, no, not all were invited, apparently. Well, the, the white supremacist apparently wasn't invited. You're right. But but the, the, the balance of the team uh, was invited, and for understandable philosophical reasons, they chose not to invite the fella... So, so Fred's, Fred's position here is qualified inclusiveness, then? Well, I don't think it's qualified inclusiveness. I, 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 think, it, I think there's a genuine... And I think uh, Vito's role would probably agree that... Uh, we should be transparent and inclusive as well. But but he's also trying to paint himself as not just a single-issue candidate, which he's been accused of, um, and, and he's got a platform that talks about other things, and yet he only wants to have a debate on one issue, which then undermines his own position that he's not a, a single-issue candidate. And so you got to wonder about that. I, I, as you said earlier, uh, LRT is certainly an issue and maybe an important issue with a lot of people, but there are other issues that are important to other people as well. And so should we have the main candidates, if that's how you want to define them, talk about more than just one issue? I, I, I get that. And, and that's why our invitation, by the way, was not exclusively about one issue. It was going to be about a variety of issues. And, and you know, Larry, you've been here, done that. So you understand that, that it's a fulsome debate when we have the debates Absolutely. here at, at CHML. And, and that's what we were proposing. And, even, and again, as to say, uh, Fred Eisenberger decided to decline, or at least his team did anyway, 
uh, Mr. Scro was was more than willing to be a participant in this. So having a one person debate seems a little uh, fruitless at this point. But why not simply have a discussion about the issues? I mean, you know. <laughs> I, I get the about campaign strategy, and I'm not for one second, in, you know, suggesting that he has a legal responsibility in any way, shape, or form, nor even maybe a moral responsibility. But at the same time, uh, there are a lot of people right now saying, "Why is he not doing this? What's he afraid of?" Well, and, and, and exactly, and uh, there are some people who are saying that, and there are a lot of people who also want to see others included in the debate, especially those who put their names forward and are having a real campaign. And, and I mentioned George Rusich because I can't see anybody else other than Fred Eisenberger, uh, Vito's Grow, and George Rusich out there, uh, uh, you know, with, with Facebook ads, with uh, Facebook postings, with election signs. So I would say at least there are three main candidates. All right, so, so if we extended the invitation to all three, would Fred join in then? Well, I don't know. You'd have to ask Fred that question, I suppose. Uh, but, but, but the point, and I think you're recognizing it now, is that there may be more than one contender out there vying for the position. And so, you know, that, that speaks to, to, to democracy and for logistical reasons, but also to avoid the sideshow that unfortunately uh, was evident when some of the uh, fringe candidates also participated, and God bless them for putting their names forward, but they just weren't aware of the issues, weren't uh, uh, intelligible on the issues, and, and really uh, took time away uh, from those of us who have to make a choice discerning uh, the candidate's positions on important issues. And so there are other ways, of course, of, of trying to get that information out. But, but generally speaking, I'm agreeing with you, Bill, that debates are good. They're, they're also entertaining. They, they allow us to see people under pressure, you know, uh, thinking on their feet and how they react to that. And also it separates the wheat from the chaff. In terms of uh, in terms of substantive uh, responses to important issues as well, I would suggest though that part of the calculation of a campaign team is to try to find the strategy that addresses all of the things that we just talked about, but also is a good strategy for my candidate. And so, if if, if what, so, what's the downside? What's the downside for Fred Eisenberger to take part in this? Well, so, that, that he's going to lose face, that he's not going to he's not going to stack up. I mean, you've been involved in debates for God knows how many years now as as a politician, Larry, and I did a couple of runs of that myself, as you know. You uh, it, it exposes you it exposes the candidate. So, it, so and, and, and you know what? And the, the, you know that you don't know whether you're going to win, you're going to whether you lose. I mean, you know, Mr. Scrooge's taking a risk. Fred Eisenberger's taking a risk. I mean, anybody who gets involved in a debate's taking a risk on it. But that's that's the nature of the game. Well, it is the nature of the game. But if you have, if you believe those who are pundits, and and you know, if you believe our local columnist uh, Andrew Dreschel, who uh, in in sizing up the debate on Cable 14, indicated uh, that uh, other than Fred Eisenberger, uh, the others did not stack up, including Vito's Grow. You gotta you gotta also believe that Fred would do well in a radio debate. And, and Scrooge would not do as well. Well, that, and that was Mr. Dreschel's opinion, and I know others that don't share that opinion. And I watched it, too, and I, I didn't think that, that it was as, as, uh, as inclusive, or exclusive, rather, as, as some people seem to indicate. Uh, Fred has the, has the power of incumbency, of course, and so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a tough situation when you only have a couple of seconds to answer a question. But anyway, that's all about the logistics of setting up the debate. First of all, you have to agree to it, and I'm getting the sense now that, uh, that it's just not going to happen, and I think the public is the loser in this. 
Well, and 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 but but in in fairness, uh, Bill, um, I, I think that there are other ways that people are getting their message to the public, and I think, uh, quite frankly, at this point in the game, uh, you know, the the uh, the uh, opinions are baked in uh, uh, as to how people are going to vote, so debate may or may not sway. Well, I listen. Uh, we're just about out of time. I'm not so sure that people have already decided how they're going to vote. Uh, and uh, we got to wrap this up, but I do appreciate yeah. you taking the time on this, Larry. Thanks so much. Thanks for the debate. Okay. Yeah, well, that's that's what it's all about. That's the nature of the beast. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry DeAnne. Uh, we've invited some other folks to participate in this over the last little while uh, and, and try to get their opinions on this. And and I really think this is uh, this is something that the public needs to hear and wants to hear. Uh, as, it's one thing to disseminate information. That's what political candidates do. But to actually debate and defend your position is, uh, is, I think, a part of the democratic process as well. And, uh, and I think that the, the city and the people that are voting in this election need to hear those candidates. They've had it in the past. They've done it in the past. Fred Eisenberger's participated in those in the past. And the fact that he is uh, not doing it this time is uh, rather, well, I think it's detrimental, obviously, to the process that he's suggesting that he's trying to defend here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, you've heard the old phrase, of course, the justice delayed is justice denied. Well, that seems to be what's going on with a uh, rather controversial case that's uh, been before the Hamilton courts for quite some time. Uh, Susan Claremont, award-winning uh, writer for the Hamilton Spectator, writes about it in today's edition. Drawn-out criminal trial faces yet another delay. And uh, Susan Claremont joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to explain this. Morning, Susan. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm good, Bill. Uh, this is a head-scratcher. I mean, yeah, I, I love reading your stuff because you bring us up right into the courtroom about what's going on. And, uh, and, and of course, also at the same time, explain all about process. And process seems to be the victim in, in, in this trial that you've, you've written about today. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a big become a big part of this case. Um, this case has been, the trial's been going on for... 13 months, making it uh, the longest trial we've ever had in Hamilton. And that's a real problem because there's new legislation in Canada that limits the amount of time it should take a, a case to move through the system. And we've heard and you've written in the past about some cases and, and where there have been so many delays that the judge has actually just said, let, let, forget it, charges are dropped, go, you can go your own way. Uh, which a lot of people, of course, just shake their heads at and said, well, what's wrong with the system? How can that sort of thing happen? But there have to be some parameters, as you've said. And, and, and I guess the question that, that we're asking as we read your piece today is, who's bragging the puck here? Why is this taking so long? Well, you know, there's a lot of reasons why this case has, has been in the court system for so long. But I would say that the, the, the top reason is one that we've heard about many, many times before, which is just our bogged down court system. Um, you know, I'm sitting in the John Sapinka courthouse right now while I'm talking to you. And, um, you know, every courtroom in this building is busy and full. Every judge has a schedule that's overflowing with cases. It, we, we just can't get through our cases quick enough because there aren't the, the judges in the courtrooms to do it. The uh, the trial to which we're referring, by the way, is is the uh, the Safter trial, uh, and it's 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 in and itself the allegations that are, are put forth in this thing are, are rather disturbing, and, and and I think obviously an awful lot of us that have been following uh, your reporting on this, Susan, are saying, look, we want to get some conclusions of this, we want to get some closures as to what's going on here, because this is some uh, this is pretty serious stuff. 
It is very serious. It's a domestic violence case with three members of the Safdar family accused of um, confining and torturing um, the wife of, of one of their family members. And, you know, there's a lot hanging in the balance here. There's there's um, the rights of the victim, the complainant in this, who is awaiting justice. There are the rights of the three accused whose lives have been turned upside down while they're going through this process. And there's a child involved in this and a, and a custody battle that's going on. So, you know, um, uh People's lives are, are put on hold while this meanders through the court system. They were arrested, uh, as you mentioned, uh, 42 months ago, April of 2015. What What is taking so long? I mean, uh, you mentioned the court system and dates, etc., and that's part of it, but uh, there's some legal wrangling that seems to be happening here, too. There, there's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, there's everything from um, lots of legal motions, legal arguments that have taken place um, during the course of this trial, there are accusations by the defense team that um, the Crown is just simply taking too long um, when examining and cross-examining witnesses. Um, there have been scheduling issues along the way. You know, there have been points, but I, I should mention that this is a, a judge-alone case, so mm-hmm. there's no jury involved, which means it sort of frees the trial up in some ways to take longer than it would if there was a a jury waiting in the wings all the time. So there have been times in this trial where, you know, we've we've sat, we've heard evidence, and then there's a break for two months before another court date is available. Um, So it's just, you know, it's 13 months, and we still haven't got a verdict yet. Talk to me about this uh, motion that was put forward by the defense, or suggestion, I guess, put forward by the defense, uh, if and when we finally get a verdict on this. As you wrote in the piece today, this is something that uh, has not been tried in Canada before. It hasn't. Um, It's a pretty, pretty bold legal maneuver on the part of the defense lawyers. Um, So what they're asking for is um, something related to the Jordan decision, which is that new legislation I mentioned. The Jordan decision puts a 30-month time limit limit on any case in Superior Court, which is what this is. And we're already a full year past that time limit. So what the defense is asking for is um, the the remedy to a a Jordan um, application is to have the charges stayed, basically to have the case thrown out because it's taken too long. Um, But what they want is, it's sort of a, they want their cake and, you know, eat it too um, kind of situation. They're asking the judge, you know, we'd like a, a stay of proceedings, but only if you are deciding if your decision is going to be to to find our clients guilty. So if you're going to find them guilty, we want you to toss the whole case out and, um, you know, we can appeal and start again. But if you're going to find them not guilty, then we don't want to stay. We want the acquittal. We want the not guilty verdict. So they're they're asking for you know, whatever works best for their client, essentially. And uh, there was some discussion in the courtroom yesterday about whether this is 
legally possible whether there's any precedent and and in fact it hasn't ever been tried in Canada before and may not even be legally possible um certainly justice Andrew Goodman the judge on this case seemed doubtful that he could even make such a thing happen so um you know we're really really smart lawyers involved in this case on all sides and uh we're seeing some interesting legal things at least tried here. Uh, th- that's really bizarre. I mean, I actually, as I read your piece this morning, I actually had to reread that section and say, they're really trying to do this? In other words, we're protesting this. It's like protesting a game and saying, but if we if we win, we're okay with it. But if we lose, then we want the protest to go through. Yeah, exactly. It is a bit of a head-scratcher. And, you know, on, on one hand, I think you, you've got to um, applaud uh, lawyers for thinking outside the box, for doing everything they can for their clients, because God forbid it should be you or me, um, you know, facing charges. We would want a lawyer who is doing everything they can on our behalf. Um, but at the same time, it seems doubtful that this is going to fly. Uh, Justice Goodman, um, you know, I think was was somewhat amused by this suggestion, and um, you know, he's a former defense lawyer himself. So I, I think he he was entertained by this, but uh, it seems doubtful that it will go anywhere. They're also seemingly hanging their hat on the, the, I guess it was a suggestion or not necessarily a prediction, uh, by uh, Assistant Crown Jeff Levy, Levy rather, uh, that this was only going to take four to six weeks, and obviously we've exceeded that. Yeah, we've, we've exceeded it by, by you know, weeks and months. Um, yeah, the defense made uh, a big deal about that yesterday, sort of blaming the Crown for being inaccurate in his um, estimation of the, of the trial length. Um, but Jeff Levy made a good point, and that was, wait a minute, that was the estimation of my piece of this trial. I put that out there before the trial even started <clears throat> so that administrators could book the courtroom, so that um, the judge would have some guidance about how long this was going to take, um, which is generally the way things are done. But, he said, the defense never did the same thing. There's some paperwork that shows that that section of the defense documents was left blank. So the defense never really ponied up and said how much uh, time they needed for their part of the case. And now they're turning that against the Crown attorney who who did put it out there and, and did his job in that regard. So... You know, things were getting a little bit heated at times in the courtroom yesterday. In all the years you've been covering this stuff, Susan, have you ever seen anything like this before? Uh, well, I mean, this is certainly the longest case I've ever been on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you think back to some of the big ones that I've done, um, the Bosma trial, which was um, actually this same judge, Justice Goodman, uh, a very complicated, very serious trial, um, six months. You know, um, the Badgero trials, there's been four of them now. Um, there's, you know, maybe three months, four months tops. So this is an unprecedented amount of time. And while there are a lot of factors in this, I, I think, you know, part of the reason that uh, I wrote that column for today's spec is, is it really highlights the seriousness of, of the, the scheduling problems in the Hamilton courthouse. You know, we just simply don't have enough judges, enough staff, enough space um, for for trials to happen in a timely manner. 
And and as you write about this one, I guess we have to keep in mind that there are others on the docket that aren't even started now because this one's taking up courtroom time. It's it's a real conundrum. It is, you know, and, and that happened over and over again with this trial. You have, um, you know, someone who's ill during the trial, and, and that has happened on the Safdar case, and no one's taking issue with, with legitimate illnesses. Um, but then it kind of screws up the, the schedule for forever after that because everything is so um, tightly scheduled that, that if anything interferes with that schedule, then it just kind of goes off the rails. What about this the, the Damocles sword that's hanging over them here, about the time frames on this? Uh, as you say, this has already exceeded that by, by a considerable amount of time right now. Uh, did you get any indication at all from Justice Goodman that uh, that he may just toss this thing and, and stay this the, the charges? Uh, you know, he's he's considering this um, 11B application, which is what it's called, um, very seriously. He, uh, you know, he really appreciates, and he said this many times in court yesterday, um, that the the three accused have a right to a speedy trial and um and and that's really been put at risk with this case so um although i don't i don't think that he's going to go for that um uh suggestion of you know maybe tossing the case or maybe not depending on the verdict I, i think that he he will seriously consider the 11b application and the possibility of a stay of proceedings but on the same token, he's also trying to find some way, I guess, to bring this thing to a conclusion. Is there a fast track that they can get on here at this date, late date Susan, to try to move this thing on? Well, we are pretty close to the end. Um, you know, the irony of, of the proceedings yesterday, which were all about how slow this thing is moving, um, yesterday's um, matters went so slowly that they didn't finish in time and that has now been put over to another date later this month but we also know that um, this is sort of the second to last stop um, dealing with this 11b application and then and then after that if if the uh, trial is not stayed if the charges aren't stayed then all we have left is a verdict and justice goodman said that he has um written his verdict it's it's virtually done um and ready to go and you know 150 pages and he is anxious to move on with things but this is again you know thrown everything off schedule he was hoping to deliver his verdict in mid-november and now i'm sure it'll be later than that if the charges are stayed does the, the crown have any recourse or is that it what's done is done uh, if the charges are stayed, then the Crown can appeal. And, and that is what happened at one point in the Badgero case. If yeah, you remember, you and I right. talked about that case a million times. Um, and it, it went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, and the, the Crown won, and there was a new trial. So, um, so yeah, the, the uh, Crown can definitely appeal, and I suspect they would in this case. It's interesting that, as we mentioned off the top, that the process, or lack of, really, seems to have superseded uh, the facts that were presented in the trial here. But obviously, Justice Goodman has uh, got the priority straight on this. Uh, and, and I guess he's trying to get this thing wrapped up and get a verdict on this. Uh, but I get the sense, uh, just from what you've written about uh, as you've covered this thing, that uh, it seems inevitable that no matter what the verdict is, if in fact there is a verdict rendered in this, uh, there's probably going to be some kind of an appeal. 
I suspect so, yes. Um, you know, these are extremely serious charges affecting three um, three defendants, three accused, uh, with uh, a couple of very uh, experienced, very talented lawyers representing them. Um, I think if it were to, to go through and be a guilty verdict, I, I would imagine that there will be an appeal from the defense. But as you've written about in the Badger trial, and this was maybe not as extreme as that one as of yet, but with the passage of time, uh, you know, obviously the testimony of uh, people that are going to be called as witnesses. I mean, you know, memories fade. Uh, you know, things get a little bit foggy. It makes it a lot problematic, I would think, for both sides. Uh, yeah, that that certainly could be a problem. Although we haven't sort of reached, um, you know, territory of this being unheard of. It, you know, there are lots of cases that go on this long or longer. Um, in terms of appeals and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're already a number of years out from the actual um, incidents that, that this trial is about. They were, um, I think, back in 2014, if I remember right. So, um, you know, so yeah. And, and, you know, I just keep thinking about there, there is a whole separate family court matter going on. And there is a four-year-old child, um, you know, sort of hanging in the balance here. Um, she's currently in the custody of her father, who is one of the accused. And, um, uh, you know, what about her? Uh, she is growing up as this trial, um, you know, wanders on. Is, is family court matter separate and apart? Can that be resolved or do they have to wait for the result of this one first? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, the family court matter has another whole set of troubles, including, um, you know, they were set to, to go to trial um, when one of the um, lawyers became very, very ill. And it looks like probably the trial, um, everything's going to have to start back at, at ground zero again. Um, so uh, no matter what happens, I think we've got a ways to go on the family court matter. Well, I, I know you'll keep us posted. You're at the courtroom right now as uh, any new developments occur, but it looks like nothing's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, great piece, Drawn Out Criminal Trial Faces Yet Another Delay. Susan Claremont, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today, Susan. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Still followed, of course, about the trade negotiations, uh, NAFTA Part 2, Son of NAFTA, whatever you want to call it, the USMC uh, deal that uh, that was struck eventually, of course, between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. Uh, and the contentious issue, of course, is supply management and the impact that it's going to have on the dairy industry on this side of the border. Once the deal was announced uh, a few weeks ago now, of course, uh, there was an immediate pushback from the dairy industry saying, look, this is going to be problematic, it's, it's punitive, and it's going to have a mu- huge, huge impact on dairy farmers. Well, uh, they have uh, decided to push back and have begun a buy local dairy campaign, uh, which is, of course, because of the USMCA deal that was struck. And they think that if we can convince uh, Canadian consumers to simply buy Canadian products, that that could mitigate some of the potential damage. Let's bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, thanks for the time. How are you doing this morning? Uh, how can I not be great on a day like today? I know. It's summertime again. This is fabulous. It is. <laughs> Loving this. Native, native, uh, native Canadian summer, or whatever the politically correct <laughs> term is. Uh, just warm. That's what I'm using. Okay. Uh, that way I'm not going to hurt anybody. Uh, so, and speaking of, is the sun shining on dairy farmers again? Is this the solution that they need? 
Well, let me, let me just do a couple of things for context here, Bill. Remember, we have signed a USMCA. That was the big celebration a little over a week ago. But now it has to be ratified. So just because three people shook hands doesn't mean anything. It's got to be ratified by the Mexican government. The hope is that will be done by December 1st. Then it has to be ratified by the American government. It's already been told that the current Congress, though they may hold some hearings on it, are not going to ratify it. It'll be the incoming Congress elected in November. And so I don't expect they're going to ratify it until early 2019, maybe March or April. And about that same time period is when Canada will ratify it. So for the moment, we're still operating under the old rules. That means there's no more American milk in our market today than there was the day before that or the day before that. I feel in a way then that the farmers are trying to jump the gun. Now, I get where they're coming from as as we've been watching this summer evolve. And, of course, Donald Trump... Uh, put tariffs on steel and aluminum and then threatened tariffs on automobiles and, of course, threatened tariffs on just about everything else, there was a little upsurge in interest in buying Canadian. You heard a lot of people saying, well, I'm not, I'm not going to buy that Heinz ketchup. I'm going to buy that, that French's ketchup because it's proudly made in Ontario with Ontario tomatoes. So there's a little uptick. So I think this is what they're trying to piggyback on. But I have to tell you that you would actually be hard-pressed to find a dairy product that isn't made in Canada or, turn it around, that is made in the United States. Uh, Today, American dairy only accounts for 3.25%. 3.25 percent of the total and most of that is milk that is we call it industrial milk it comes into canada it doesn't hit us consumers directly instead it goes to places gets processed gets turned into yogurt and ice cream and cheeses and in that processing of american milk suddenly it becomes canadian yogurt and canadian cheese and canadian ice cream because the processing happened here I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any American products. So I get what they're trying to do, but it just doesn't feel like it's going to be that necessary. Well, with that in mind, then, why the big fuss? Why the big furor here? I mean, you know, the, we're hearing them talking about, you know, the farms going out of business and they're not going to be able to sell their product. Uh, it sounds as if this isn't going to have a significant impact on the market. Yeah, so again, two, two answers to your question, Bill. Uh, when the dust settles, so when USMCA is completely ratified and the new rules uh, come into effect, in terms of dairy, specifically milk and cheese, what have you, the American content is going to go from 3.25% of the market to 3.60% of the market. Now, yes, yes, you know, that's an increase of 10%, maybe even 15%, but as a fraction, it's 0.35% of the market it's hardly going to be noticeable out there. And so I I have to say candidly, I think what this is more about, though, is trying to defend the supply management. During the negotiations on USMCA, certainly over the summer, there were lots and lots from people who said, well, you know, maybe maybe it's time to scrap supply management altogether. Most people listening to us, Bill, don't remember that uh, Stephen Harper's plan to modernize NAFTA was not to negotiate a new NAFTA, but instead something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership that uh, contained the United States, Mexico, and Canada. It also had nine other countries, but we'll modernize there. And in that agreement, our Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, had agreed to phase out supply management completely over a 10-year period and move more to an open free market. Compared to what we might have had 
under Trans-Pacific Partnership, the, the little bit that Justin had to give up to allow this deal to happen, it, it just doesn't feel like going to the bat and protesting to me. I, just, I really don't understand it, except if you see it as the start of a slippery slope. Sure, it's 0.35% today, and it'll be... 1% tomorrow will be 5% the day after that. The next thing you know, supply management's gone. I think this is more about, you know, giving confidence and, and drawing a line and trying to keep a system in place than it is really about American competition. You know, the irony about that is, uh, as you know, Stephen Harper's got a new book out, and I just saw some excerpts from it yesterday, and he's defending supply management in that book and saying it's essential for, for the, the dairy industry and for the economy in this, can, in this country. Uh, so I guess he's basically saying, forget what I said back then. I just Here's what I printed now. Okay, that's going to be my legacy. But anyway, that, uh, not the first time there's been an incongruity from a politician. <laughs> but, but, it, it's got, no, but it's got people's heads spinning, Marvin, because you figure out well, who's right and who's wrong here, because they seem to, 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 to you know, f- fluctuate from p- position to position on this, and, and p- people in the industry and, of course, people on the political side. Well, I, I have to say, again, I teach at a business school. I'm actually a fan of supply management. Now, let me try to quickly explain why that is. We don't have individual farmers competing against other individual farmers. That's quite different in the United States. If I can squeeze in 10 more cows and beat my competitor to the market, even if the farm down the road, I'm going to do that. I really like the idea that we don't, we don't have one farm competing against the other. So how do we do that? We set quotas, and we say to each farm, here's how much milk you can produce, here's how much milk you can produce. And by the way, we do that for eggs and dairy, excuse me, eggs and chicken and turkeys. We do that in all of those situations so that we don't have one farmer competing against the other. Now, that works really well as long as you also control access to your market from imported products. And as Canada has tried to enter into new free trade deals, whether it's a free trade deal with Europe or the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or in this case, the United States, there are other countries who also have you know, dairy and chicken and turkey and what have you, they want access. So the trick for us is to say we can give you a little more access without necessarily dismantling the whole system. And I know, I know if I'm a farmer that any change from the status quo is a little shock to my nervous system. And, and I, I think, again, what the government's likely going to do, you'll probably hear this in 2019 rather than 2018, there will be some some grant programs for farmers. We'll call them farm modernization or farm efficiency programs that will allow them to to just be better prepared for the increase in competition. But compared to what it might have been, I just think this is much ado about nothing. Because the picture that I think a lot of people painted in their minds when they heard about, uh, you know, the, the the doom and gloom that was coming from the industry about this is that, you know, once this deal is signed, as you mentioned, hopefully in a couple of months, uh, that our, our dairy shelves are going to be full of American product. And it's, well, where's the Canadian stuff? Oh, it's it's way down there at the end. And I, I don't see that happening. Right. So now let's, let's turn this around. The, the fact that they've come up with some uh, identifying logos is not a bad thing to, to the, a consumer who says, well, I do want to buy Canadian. How do I recognize whether that bag of milk is Canadian or from another source without reading the fine print and getting my magnifying glasses on to find it? I think it's a good idea to have a logo, and if that inspires a little national pride, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. So there's, there's nothing wrong with what they're doing, and in fact, as they say, if it inspires consumers to buy Canadian, great. 
However, if the whole idea is to defeat the Americans at the supermarket shelf, we're just not going to see that. Uh, I, I believe uh, I was listening to some expert who talked about how America has a warehouse full of cheese. The American government buys cheese to keep the price reasonable in the United States. Oh, they'll ship that all to Canada. No, the American government doesn't do that. That cheese is there for emergency rations, and they ship it to people who are in the way of hurricanes and things like that. It has nothing to do with that. I don't think you're going to see a flood. The concern, and I think this is where the farmers really should have a concern, is labeling Canadian products that are made with American milk. That's not really part of their initiative, and I think that's the part that should worry them. Industrial milk coming into Canada, not getting put into bags and put on the shelf, but getting turned into ice cream and yogurt, how do you know, especially if it is manufactured at a Canadian facility, using Canadian workers, perhaps even mixed in with some Canadian milk, then you know, should you be worried about that? And we don't have a way to identify that today. Well, and you're right. I mean, there are people that seek that out. And, and we, by the way, were one of those families that said, yeah, I'm not buying that kind of ketchup anymore. We'll, we'll go with the French's. And, and I know a lot of folks have done that. Uh, so we get that. So I think there's already this buy Canadian mood when possible, but uh, not exclusively. And, and there's a story, in, I guess it's on the CBC website, about a, a American milk producer. It's called Fair Life Milk, and I guess it's it's in America. But they've already got it apparently on some of the shelves in, in Canadian grocery stores. But uh, Coca-Cola owns this, and they say, look, we're going to actually build a plant in Canada, in Peterborough. Uh, so this is essentially going to be a Canadian product soon. So what's the big deal? I'm, and and there, I guess that fits into the description you've just talked about, Marvin. Where there, you've got hybrid products like that. So I mean, are we right. being uh, are we being you know disloyal to Canadian uh, farmers if we buy those hybrid products? Yeah, and it's, I, it's I mean, employing I mean, it's employing Canadians. It is, and, and, and it may be even made with some Canadian milk. It may not be exclusively American milk. This is the reality when you start moving into free trade, that what is truly a Canadian product or a French product or a German product or an American product starts to blend. A simple example, Bill, is a Sony television set. Oh, my gosh, that's Japanese. Well, no, the television is assembled in Mexico. If you look at the component parts that go into it, there are parts from 42 countries around the world that get to Mexico, get assembled, and then it's sold. What is it? It's, it's a little of this and a little of that. Even automobiles, given our, our, our borders and our trade and automobile parts, they're not exclusively Canadian. They may be assembled in Canada, but they aren't necessarily made with Canadian parts. And this is the reality in this world that we live in now, this freer trade world we live in. So I'm not for a moment suggesting we shouldn't buy Canadian and reward those people who go the extra effort to ensure that everything's Canadian. But on the other hand, something that is uh, assembled in Canada, manufactured in Canada, that's actually where the biggest value-added component of the product is. Just the fact that maybe the raw material came from the United States, I don't know if that's a reason to boycott it, because that the jobs that it uses to manufacture, that's where the real value is. I want to reward that. How effective are these programs, Marvin, from a, a marketing standpoint? You know, buy this, buy that, buy Canadian. And because we've heard this before, for instance, uh, in, in the wine industry, uh, you shouldn't be buying American or California wines. It should be, you know, Canadian wines altogether. And, uh, you know, you've got to do this to support the industry. And, uh, and, and I know some people that do adhere to that almost religiously, but others are simply saying, look, at, I'm the consumer. I'm going to buy what I want. You know, if I like that brand, I'm going to buy it. 
Right. So um, from an individual standpoint, these programs just really don't work. While there may be the odd person who becomes evangelical about it and really goes out of their way, it tends to be mostly a short-term thing. So for a few months, I want to send a signal to Donald Trump, so I I'd get that religion for two or three months, and I really check what I'm doing. But after a while, I, I just need some groceries. I go in, I've got, I'm in a rush. I just don't have the time, and it's very difficult for consumers to sustain one of these. Now, you've given a slightly different example. Um, this, uh, in terms of wine, uh, we have the LCBO that sells wine, and they have worked very hard to give Canadian products or Ontario products uh, preferential spaces so they're at eye level. You don't have to bend over to pick up a bottle, so on and so forth. And those do actually prove to be effective, but that's done by a retailer who makes an effort to help promote a Canadian product or an Ontario product. But if it's up to the individual consumer, most of us just cannot sustain this over time and and you i'm sure have also seen those wonderful bumper stickers you know keep buying american products guess where your jobs are going to go we we just don't and i have nice students here at the university that i teach and they'll get on uh, quite a rant at one point about we need to buy canadian and i'll say where did that shirt come from well i got that at a store at the mall yes but where did that shirt manufactured People never check the labels. It's it's really hard to sustain that for any great length of time. Yeah, and that's marketing. You're right. I mean, you know, the, our, my local LCBO. You walk in there, the Canadian wine's right in front of you. Uh, it, you literally, it's it's there. If you want to go and get a bottle of red wine, you're probably going to go to that shelf because there is there's the red wine right there. But so convenient. But I also know that if you like Wolf Blast, you're going to walk right past that and go to the Australia section and buy your Wolf Blast. That's 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 simply the the, the freedom of, of choice that we have when we go in and, and shop like that. But I got to assume that the same thing is going to happen with dairy. Uh, but and, and wasn't Absolutely. that part of the argument when when, when there were, uh, I guess it was the Harper government that was negotiating the European trade deal. I mean, uh, there are people that I know that are cheese fanatics that want European cheese, and they're saying, "Well, yeah, why can't we have a deal like this? I may buy Canadian from time to time, but if I'm having a party, I want European cheeses. I want choice. I want variety." Right. So, again, a quick example. When we had these very high tariffs on European cheeses, there became a market for Canadian versions of European cheeses. So a Canadian Camembert, a Canadian Brie, a Canadian Edom, a Canadian Gouda, they weren't made in those cities, they weren't made in those regions, but they were made to resemble those products. And because of the price differential, people said, well, you know, I like Gouda, but I don't want to pay $12 a pound, I'll pay $3 a pound for the Canadian. Because of the new deal, those cheeses are now able to enter our market with a much lower rate of duty, if any duty at all. And now the Canadian product has to work just a little harder to succeed. Uh, it still does succeed, and it's still in the market space because, again, consumers' tastes have been, choi- uh, have been developed, and you may like the taste of a Canadian Gouda rather than the real one from, from Holland. Uh, but th- those are the choices you have. I just think you have to be able to modernize. And one of the problems when you put tariff barriers, and I wish Mr. Trump would understand this, you actually promote inefficiency of local government or local manufacturers. There's no need for them to get better in their competition because, look, I'm hiding behind a big trade barrier. Consumers aren't going to buy their products because of the higher prices. You actually promote inefficiency. So as we open our markets, we also have to incent people to become a little smarter, a little more efficient in what they're doing, and they can still compete, but it isn't necessarily business as usual, and that's what scares people. They like what they like. They like what they know. They don't want to have to change. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. Thanks a lot, Marvin. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.